Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Our fall series continues tonight. We're so happy to have Aaron Gallagher with us tonight. He's going to be speaking to us on the subject of hell. Remember that we're studying things that matter. And, of course, we know that that topic certainly matters. And so Aaron will be speaking to us in just a moment. And next week we'll have Brother David Powell, and he will teach on humility. So we look forward to Aaron's lesson and the continuance of our series. I want to go ahead and introduce Aaron to you. He attends the South Haven Church of Christ, where he's a deacon, and he works at the Gospel Broadcasting Network. There at GBN, Aaron oversees production and social media in his own programs like the Authentic Christian Podcast and Answering the Error with Don Blackwell. Um, Aaron is married to his best friend, Jamie Gallagher, and they have two children, Evelyn and Eric, and so we want to welcome Aaron. Uh, We're glad you're with us tonight. Good evening. It's good to be with you all. Uh, I was here, I think, one time about three or four years ago with Don Blackwell when I uh, first started at GBN, and it was nice to meet uh, some of you back then, and I'm thankful to be back here tonight. I want to thank the elders, um, thank Glenn, Paul, who I I know I don't get to meet tonight because he's not here. He's somewhere else, like maybe across town, but uh, I just want to thank you all for all the support of GBN that you've given over the years, um, and, and thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, to speak tonight. We had a good day today. We came in yesterday, and my, uh, we took my wife and two kids who were back there in the, in the uh, kids' classrooms to the, uh, the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. And uh, as I get a little bit older, sometimes you forget that you're getting older. And so my two-year-old daughter wanted to go into the uh, little, like, kids' tunnel. And my wife's seven months pregnant, so she wasn't going in. And so I spent about 30 minutes like a sardine in that thing, uh, once or twice, I started to get a little claustrophobic, didn't know if I was going to make it out, but, but we survived, and they took naps, and I'm glad to be here uh, with you all tonight. So on this, uh, this summer series that you all are having, uh, the topic that I chose when I saw the list was the topic of hell. Uh, it's not because I like, or I guess maybe enjoy is the right word, preaching uh, on hell, but it's because it's important. Um, why should we talk about hell whenever it's uh, uncomfortable? I know that as a child, I was even scared to say the word because I didn't quite understand the difference between how some people used it as a curse word and how the Bible used it. And even as an adult, before I say the word, sometimes I pause to make sure that I'm saying it in, in the right manner. Uh, as an, uh, no one likes to think about the pain uh, and the torment that the Bible describes when it talks about hell. It's uncomfortable for us to think about. You know, we see horrible things happen in our world uh, all the time. In fact, I live in the Memphis area. And I'm sure that you saw some of this on the national news, but there was a young lady just a few weeks ago who was out for a morning jog and was abducted. Uh, And that really hit home because my wife was a runner and she's about the same age. And so we see a lot of really awful things in our life. But it's always interesting that I see the media talk about these things in sort of fear-mongering or what they call it now, doom doom scrolling, where you scroll and read all these awful stories on your social media. And yet I never hear anybody talk about the, the reason for that, which is sin, and I never hear anybody talk about the outcome of what happens when you commit acts like that without contacting the blood of Christ. And so it's uncomfortable to talk about, 
And a lot of the things we're going to talk about tonight are not comfortable um, to talk about, to think about, um, but they're important. I saw a study recently that said 75% of people think that they're going to heaven. Um, obviously, we know from the scriptures that that doesn't seem to be the, um, the uh, I guess, ratio that you'd get if you look at a, a section like Matthew chapter 7, right? But people always want to talk about heaven, but they never want to talk about what? They never want to talk about hell. And so we're going to talk about that and tonight, and some people would say, well, do we really need a whole lesson on it? Why can't, it's uncomfortable, Aaron, why can't we just read through the Bible, and whenever it mentions the word hell, then we'll talk about it, but we'll just move on. And I think one of the important reasons to talk about it is because Jesus talked about it. And one of the reasons that Jesus talked about it so much uh, is that there's a big problem that's really universal for all of mankind, and that is what? The three-letter word, sin. It, it's really a consequence uh, of sin and hell is the destination that because of sin that a lot of people are headed for. And in fact, all people were headed uh, for hell before the Lord stepped in and gave us a way to get ourselves right with him. And the problem is that sin causes separation. If you remember all the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, you have God creating the universe, six days resting on the seventh. He puts man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And then what happens pretty quickly? If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 3, and let's go to verse 22 and look at what sin does, how it causes separation. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever. Verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east side of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here in the very beginning of creation, these people sin. They don't listen to God. They fall. Uh, they, Eve was deceived. First Timothy 2 says Adam wasn't deceived, but he still fell into the transgression. And so here that you see they're separated from God. They're cast out of the garden where they can no longer eat from the tree of life. And so you can see people who were up to this point sinless, and they commit one sin. What happens? They're separated. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, you've heard that passage many times. It talks about how the people were separated from God. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. But interestingly, it's a little bit different. In this case, who who is he speaking to? He's speaking to still his children under a different covenant, not Adam and Eve under the patriarchal covenant, but you have here speaking to faithless Israel, who's God's covenant people in the Old Testament. And they had been following him, but up to this point, they'd been unfaithful as Isaiah is dealing with that before the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. He says that the Lord will not hear your cries. He's not going to hear your prayers because you've been unfaithful and your sins have separated you from God. This is a fundamental problem, sin is, and the separation it causes for each single, uh, every single person in this uh, room. Uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, I'm sure you hear this passage all the time. It says, for all have sinned and fall short, present tense, fall short of the glory of God. And what's the big deal about that? Well, chapter 6, three chapters later in the same verse, verse 23, says this. The wages of sin is death. Anyone here have a job? Right? All right, I'm looking at the young, see how many of y'all got jobs, right? I'm just kidding. Um, whenever you earn, you work, what do you earn? You earn wages, right? When I had my first job, I was a city maintenance guy. I went around and cleaned up city bathrooms and 
couple dead catfish every once in a while that would pop up in a pond. It was not a glorious job, but every two weeks, whenever payday came, what was I waiting for? My wages. It's what I earned. I said, look, this is my money. If someone didn't pay me, I had a company once that I worked and earned commissions, and I went in, and it wasn't on my paycheck. And what do you think I said to them? You owe me this. And they said, well, we do, but we decided to pay another bill with that, and we'll pay you back later. Okay? And so anyway, I expected to earn that. I, I, I did the work for it. Whenever you sin, Romans 6.23 says, what do you earn? The wages of sin is death. It's not physical death, okay? It's spiritual death here, right? But then the good news is the second part, but the gift of God. Some translations say the free gift of God, but it says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. So sin is a fundamental problem for every single person in this world and in this room because it is a sin, a problem that will destine you for uh, eternal damnation in hell. And that's why it's important for us to talk about. You know, we should be a people about the same thing Jesus was. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus said that his mission was to what? Seek and save that which was lost. That was us at one point in time, and it's going to be every single person at some point in time that you meet uh, in your life. So Jesus talked about it because it's a fundamental problem, but also because who is the only solution to that problem? Jesus was. He's the only solution. You can try to think with all of you know, the knowledge you have in your brain. I'm sure some of you in here are really smart. And you can't get over the sin problem except through one person, and that is Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, one of my favorite passages, Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, writing to the church in Rome, in that while we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. He says, look, even when you were a sinner, even when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, as Ephesians 2 says, Christ died for you then. And then he says, he died for you then. If he died for you whenever you were a sinner, look at what he says next. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? Wrath. It's a five-letter word, wrath. That's probably not a word that we use a lot today. But let's take a look a little bit about what that, that word means. Saved from the wrath of God. If you have your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. This is a very important chapter to learn, mainly because it's one that's misused uh, very frequently by uh, what you might hear called Calvinism or Reformed theology. But look in, in verse 22. Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. He's answering the uh, objection to the Jew that says, well, if you just used us to bring the Messiah, then what's the point? What did you use us for? Okay? And in verse 22, it says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured, he was patient, he put up with, much long-suffering, patience, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. How were they prepared? Some people say that they were prepared before the beginning of time by God, which is not what the Bible teaches. But there's a, somebody here is a Greek scholar that says this. The passage is in the middle voice, which means people have prepared themselves for destruction. So whenever you do something like sin, sometimes the, word, the world doesn't like to talk about the world's sin, right? They want to minimize it and say, well, that's an alternative lifestyle, or, well, that's just your truth. But the Bible says that when something transgresses God's law, 1 John 3, 4, it's sin. And what does sin do? Romans chapter 9, verse 22 says that you are storing up wrath for yourself. Go back to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, there's a longer passage that probably shouldn't cover the whole thing, but let's just give it a shot. Might have to talk a little bit faster. But go to Romans chapter 2. And let's start in verse 2. We're going to look at a long passage. He's talking to the Jews here. Start in verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to what? 
according to truth. God's always going to do the right thing. Okay? As we saw in Genesis chapter 18, about verse 25, where Abraham uh, is before uh, God. And he's pleading with God for, to basically spare Sodom. And God's very patient with him. When I read that story, I'm still sort of blown away at the patience of God to let Abraham reason with him back and forth that many times. But in about verse 25, I think, I know it's in chapter 18, the the question is, will not the judge of the earth do right? The idea is, is God not going to do the right thing? And the answer is, of course, what? Yes, of course God's going to do the right thing, okay? So the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, this is verse 3, Romans chapter 2, you who judge those practicing these things and do the same thing, you will escape the judgment of God. So he's talking to the people saying, if you teach against this, but then you turn around and do it, then what? You're not going to escape the judgment of God. Okay, God's, he knows whenever somebody teaches, this is wrong to do, and then they do it. Now, you should still teach it's wrong, and if you're committing it, you should try to repent and stop doing it, right? Look at verse 4. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering, knowing not that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Look at verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are doing what? Treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Imagine if you, I don't know, we're back in the Civil War days. I've heard there's a bunch of lost gold. I didn't do a lot of looking into this. But imagine you stumble on all this gold. What are you going to try to do? You're going to take a little piece and go home and be happy? Most people try to hoard as much of it as they can, Right? And so here he says, you are doing what? By the way you're living, you're treasuring up, you're storing up. What are you storing up? Wrath in the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render each according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, indignation, and wrath. What is Wrath. Wrath is something that flows out of God's righteousness, his justice, but it's something that we need to deal with because as people who sin, if we're not careful and we don't conduct ourselves in the right way by obeying the gospel, as Romans 2 there said, then what? We are storing up treasuring wrath for the day of what? The day of judgment. And so what is hell? What is a part of that wrath? Let's take a look at that. The King James uses uh, the word hell 23 times. Uh, It translates three different Greek words, and I think it's important to look at those. Um, the first one that we're going to take a look at uh, is in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. It's only used one time, right? When you look at a Bible word, and I'm not a Greek expert, so don't come up afterwards and ask me a bunch of Greek questions. You're going to get a lot of, well, I don't know. But I've read a lot and, and learned a little bit. And in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, let's just read it together. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Okay, this word is where you'll see the word Tartarus. Okay, it's only one time in the New Testament. A lot of times when you look at New Testament words, the way that lexicons, which is a Greek dictionary, the way they find out what a word means is they look at how this word is used in other writings of that time, right? So if it's only used one time in the Bible, you don't really have any verses to compare it to. And so they would go and look at how it's used in other Greek literature. And so in Homer, I'm sure you've heard of Homer, Uh, He said this, Hades is the place of confinement of dead men, and Tartarus is the name given to a murky abyss beneath Hades. So Greeks thought that Hades was here, and then there was this murky abyss called Tartarus. It is the name given to this abyss beneath Hades in which the sins of fallen immortals are punished. And then Kaufman in his commentary says, it was natural for Peter, writing to the Greeks, to use this word with reference to the state of condemnation of the angels, 
but without the endorsement of any pagan traditions. So uh, basically, if you look, that uh, Tartarus was a place in Greek mythology. They said that Zeus was inflicting punishment on all of these titans. And what Kaufman says is, Peter's obviously not endorsing that. That's not biblical. That's Greek mythology. But this word Tartarus means a place where these angels are being punished. Now, we're not going to get into a discussion of what that word means. Uh, There's some people that think it's the lower part of Hades, where in Luke 16, you had the rich man in the bad part of Hades and Lazarus in the good part, okay? Uh, but we do know from 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, the way it's written shows that the, the angels were under present punishment at the time that Peter uh, was writing. So that could be in the bad part of Hades, uh, but we'll, we'll move past that so this discussion for another time. Okay. The second uh, way that this, uh, the, the word that you'll see is the word Hades. Okay. This is where the King James uh, uses the word hell. Now, just I'll read a quote here in a little bit, but just so you know, the, the King James translators weren't ignorant. I've heard some people say, well, they didn't know what they were talking about, and they used the wrong word. No, they had a reason that they used the word hell, uh, where the New King James or some other modern translations would use Hades, and I'll, I'll look at that in one second. But Hades is used 11 times in the New Testament. Ten times it's translated hell. Once it's translated as grave. And so this is a very popular passage that you probably know from Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Pentecost, and Peter's preaching. And he quotes Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10. And he says this, You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, the the Hebrew would have used the word Sheol, okay? And in the New Testament, uh, the translation would have been Hades, okay? Um, So you can uh, compare uh, the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew. Let's say you're a first century Greek, and you don't know Hebrew, but you want to read the Old Testament. You need a what? Translation. And so, a couple hundred years before Jesus... They said, well, let's translate this Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. And you can look at that to see what Old Testament words were used in, in New Testament Greek words. Okay? So this word Hades, you'll see it quite a bit. Uh, it's what is used in Luke 16 with the two compartments, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and he goes to the bad part where he's tormented. And Lazarus goes to the good part, uh, which is called Abraham's bosom. Okay? That's also the place... In Luke 23, 43, where Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay? So that is the word uh, Hades. Uh, this is, I have a little quote from McClintock and Strong's. Why did the King James translators use hell for Hades? Okay? So just in case you don't use a King James, but just don't use this argument to bash the King James. Okay? This is why. Hell is a term which originally corresponded more exactly to Hades. So what he's saying is at the time the King James was translated, guess what? That's what the word meant, okay? It meant being derived from a Saxon word, helen, H-E-L-A-N, which meant to cover and signified merely something covered or an invisible place, the habitation of those who have gone from this visible terrestrial region to the world of spirits. It's so been long appropriated in common language to the place of future punishment for the wicked in our language, right, that the earlier meaning has been lost, okay? It's like the word uh, gay. We know in the 50s that word meant something completely different, right? It used to be said that those who would, uh, uh, like roofers, I read somewhere were called hellers. They were someone that covered over your house, right? So, in the 1600s, when they translated this word, it meant something different than what we use it for today, okay? So the King James translators were not ignorant. Uh, they just used a word that meant something different back then to what it means to us 400 years later, okay? So words do change meanings. Now, the third one we're going to spend the most time on tonight is uh, this word, uh, which is the word Gehenna, okay? 
Gehenna. Uh, it's taken from the Old Testament. There was a valley in the Old Testament called the Valley of Hinnom, okay, Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Uh, the first time this may show up in your Bibles, if you're taking notes, if you're taking notes and I'm going too fast, just come give me your email afterwards and I will send you all of my notes and you can take them and edit them and, you know, use them as your own, okay? Um, in Joshua chapter 15 and verse 8, uh, you see it's a discussion of land that was allotted to Judah and in that discussion it talks about, uh, Joshua describes a valley in the ravine south of Jerusalem. It's likely named after uh, some Jebusite, because that's who owned uh, Jerusalem or ruled it uh, before Joshua and the conquest took it over. Okay? So this word, uh, Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, is where the word Gehenna comes from. That's the Greek word that's translated as hell. Okay? In another passage in 2 Chronicles 28.3, in the Old Testament there's a lot of things that happened that were bad in this valley. Okay? In 2 Chronicles 28.3, Ahaz, this who's being discussed, King Ahaz, he burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and here's what he did. He burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and verse 6, Manasseh is being discussed, and this is what's said about Manasseh. He caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying witchcraft sorcery consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So these two men, Ahaz and Manasseh, in this valley, they sacrificed their kids to Molech and these false gods. I always wonder if, you know, like Josiah comes later in 2 Kings 23 maybe, and he just purges all this evil from the land. I always wonder if Josiah or one of these other kings saw his brother. I don't know if they, if they passed the oldest kid through the fire. But, I mean, imagine that. Like, I can only imagine growing up if I saw what my dad passed my brother through these fires, these false gods. What do you think that would make me think about those false gods? I'd hate them. My dad sacrificed my little brother to these things. And so Josiah comes through in 23, chapter 23 of 2 Kings, and basically turns this into a garbage dump, okay? He defiles it. He says, no one is going to worship these false gods in this valley anymore. And Jeremiah speaks of this valley about seven times and says, you know, you used to call it Tophet or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, but God's going to call it the Valley of Slaughter whenever he punishes you, writing to Israel unfaithfully, about the, the destruction that Babylon was going to, to bring in on 606 and, and 586. Uh, Josephus talked about how in AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, they tossed all kinds of bodies into this valley and just burned them. This, this place, by the time of the first century, had become a place that was a trash heap. Everybody was always burning things. Uh, it was like a common grave. And so a man named Lightfoot, who's a scholar, says the Jewish rabbis by the first century thought that this was the gateway to the underworld, the gateway to hell, right? This was such an evil place. And so that's one of the reasons that this word, Gehenna, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, carries the weight that it does at the time that Jesus begins to use it. It was seen of this place of spiritual and just physical torment and burning, uh, continually burning. And so let's look at some more passages. What is the purpose uh, of hell. You know, you might think, well, the purpose of hell is to, to punish mankind for their sins. Well, that ends up being one of the reasons uh, that God used for it. But if you look in your Bible in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, let's flip there. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. After we read this, I think this is an important passage because uh, I've seen a lot of movies that depict hell in a much different way than the Bible actually talks about it. Look at Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. This is uh, basically a judgment scene from verse 31 through 46, 
where he talks about all mankind to be gathered before God. And he says, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. And those people say, Lord, why, well done, good and faithful servant. What did I do to deserve this? And God says, well, I was naked, you clothed me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, right? And then he talks about those on the left that didn't do it. And look at what he says in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. You know, the Bible says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. I think this helps with one of these misconceptions about hell. I remember growing up, you know, I, I watched lots of movies growing up. Uh, well, I guess it was more, not when I was growing up, but when I was in my mid-twenties and unfaithful to church. My, I didn't get anything by my dad growing up, which I'm thankful for now. But I watched a movie once that depicted hell as this place where, guess who's in charge? The devil. They thought that the devil was in charge and he was meeting out punishment to these people and he was like in this real nice sort of house and, and they, they, they looked at it like de- the devil was like was the manager or was running or was king of hell. Matthew twenty five forty one says what? Hell was created for the devil to be what? Punished. Hell is not a place, as some people say, well, I'd rather, let me get this right. They say, I would rather, uh, let's see, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. That's what I've heard people say before. They say, look, I'm going to go to hell with the devil, and we're going to have fun doing gambling and all these different drinking vices, all these things they've done on earth. That's not how hell works. Hell was created to punish the devil and his angels. And if that place was created to punish the devil, anybody in here think that they could take the devil one-on-one in a fight? No, angels are pretty powerful beings. Remember in the Old Testament, one angel wiped out, what, 185,000 Assyrians? Is that what it was? And so angels are very powerful, and yet this place is a place created to punish them for eternity. And I can guarantee you that none of us want to spend time in a place like that. What is the nature of hell? What does the Bible say as far as uh, the characteristics uh, of it? Look at Matthew chapter 5 verses 29 and 30, Matthew chapter 5. We could spend a lot of time on a lot of these verses, but I just want to highlight some of the, I don't know, maybe the main points or the, the characteristics, the aspects, the adjectives that were given in these passages. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell, Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, I do not think that Jesus is giving uh, instructions here to basically maim yourself. Uh, If you have a problem with lust and you pluck out one eye, what's going to happen? The other eye, you're probably still going to lust, okay? I think what Jesus is talking about here is he's saying take aggressive action to cut off any sin that's in your life, right? Uh, if you have a sin, something that's really prevalent in a lot of churches today, a lot of people don't like to talk about it. If you have a sin like pornography that's tempting you, get an accountability partner, right? Uh, find somebody you trust. Talk to them. Sign up for softwares that basically monitor all of your activity and send it to somebody that you know. Um, there's lots of different things you can do. Don't take your phone to private places with you, right? All those things. I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying if, you, if your big problem is pornography on your cell phone, then go get a flip phone, right? Cut off, take aggressive action to get rid of whatever you need to get rid of so that you're not cast into hell. Set boundaries for yourself. You know, in Matthew 9, no, Mark 9. Mark 9, he adds, it's a parallel account to this verse in Matthew at the Sermon on the Mount. But he adds, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. 
In the New Testament, he gives some further descriptors. Couldn't remember if I had a slide there or not. Matthew 25, 30, he speaks of hell being outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't, I don't, it's kind of hard to picture how awful this would be, but just imagine you're in a, a perfectly dark place, outer darkness. I don't know if it's like the plague of darkness where it's darkness that can be felt. I don't even know what that means, but it's dark. Um, nothing of God's presence, his goodness, his mercy, his love, it's all gone. And it says there's weeping, probably screaming, and people gnashing their teeth. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, it talks about unquenchable fire, which is interesting. I don't know if anybody likes to do DIY or watch HGTV. If you're remodeling a house, what's the one substance you don't want to mess with? Asbestos? That's actually what the Greek word is in Matthew 3.12. Unquenchable. Because somebody said, hey, this stuff doesn't burn. Asbestos doesn't burn. Let's put it in houses. And they found out it causes cancer. And they said, well, we better stop doing that, right? That's what that word unquenchable, right? In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Let's read that one. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So he's saying who? Don't fear mankind. Don't fear those people who can kill your physical body but can't touch your soul. Who should you fear? Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, a lot of times people jump on this and they say, now, wait a minute. This says destroy the body and the soul. And they think, well, maybe this is teaching this idea of annihilationism, which is, well, if you're really wicked and evil, you'll be punished for a little bit of time. Uh, some groups say you won't be punished at all, but whenever you die, what happens? You're just annihilated, right? There's no more suffering and punishment. Now, that's pretty comforting if it was true. Uh, I can think of a lot of people in my life uh, that God will judge people. I'm not going to be there on Judgment Day saying, well, hey, uh, Lord, Aaron, what do you think about this guy? Well, Lord, that's not how it's going to work. But there are people in my life who have, uh, I've known, have been friends with, who have died, that had nothing to do with God and uh, really lived pretty um, sinful lives, it would be really comforting for me to think that those people weren't in eternal, eternal uh, torment. The only problem is that it's not biblical. Um, if you look up different lexicons, Greek dictionaries, what does this word destroy or perish here mean? Thayer says it's given over to eternal misery. He says it doesn't mean that they're just going to be wiped out. It means eternally, forever, they're going to be uh, in misery. In fact, go to Matthew 25, 46. We were in Matthew 25, 25 a minute ago where we looked at that judgment scene where it says that hell was created for the devil and his angels, okay? Look at 25, 46. I'm reading from a New King James. And as these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I, I don't know why the translators chose to use different words there, but the word everlasting and eternal, eternal life and everlasting punishment is the exact same Greek word. I mean, you can go look it up. You can just Google Matthew twenty-five forty-six interlinear, and it'll show you the English words and the Greek words. So the duration, whatever heaven is, hell is going to be what? The same length. I mean, that's exactly what the Bible says in Matthew twenty-five forty-six. And so what about some other objections to this doctrine of an eternal hell? Some people will say, well, Aaron, a loving God would never do that. Um, maybe somebody makes it a more genuine question and says, why would a loving God uh, do that? Well, we know that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God is good. God is merciful, Ephesians 2. God will always do what's right, Genesis 18, 25. But I want you to think about this. Uh, imagine a God who's so powerful to speak the universe into existence, right? He's got all this power, but he's also not only loving and, ju- and good and merciful, but he's also just. What would you say to a judge that took a murderer and just let him off the hook? Would that be justice to you? No, it wouldn't. 
So God is holy, and as Habakkuk 1.13 says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. Sin can't even come into God's presence. It's not like God says on Judgment Day, well, I don't like sin, therefore I'm not going to let the people in. It's, sin can't even come into God's presence. Okay, And so because of that, Jesus literally said that the only way somebody would go to hell is over his what? You've heard that phrase, over my dead body? Jesus literally said the only way someone's going to go to hell is if they over my dead body, if they reject the sacrifice on the cross that Christ gave. Uh, Maybe somebody would say, okay, well, I understand God can punish people, but really, not eternally, that's too long. You know, I talked about that situation in the Memphis area with that Eliza, the young girl. Took that guy, it's a really graphic story, but after he abducted her, four minutes until the vehicle moved. How long do you think you you should put that guy in prison for? I'd say for the rest of his life, and honestly, if I was in power, and I'm not gonna be, I think I'd probably bring back a little more strict punishment like they used to in the old days. But that guy commits something in a few minutes, and he should be spending the rest of his life in prison, right? What do you think about somebody who spends their entire life sinning against God? I mean, like, you know, you might think lying's not that big of a deal, but in Proverbs 6, six things the Lord hates, seven's an abomination. You know, lying's in there two and maybe three times if you want to count sowing discord against a brother as a third one. Out of seven sins, the Lord picks, he's lying three times. How many lies have you told in your I've told a lot of lies in my life. How long would a holy and just God that is separate from sin, how long could he choose to punish somebody? And the answer is, well, as long as God chooses. I want to paint a picture quickly of Resurrection Day. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says basically there's going to be a trump, there's going to be the sound, a, a voice of an archangel, okay, a trumpet of God. The dead in Christ are going to rise. We who are alive that remain are going to meet him in the air. In 2 Thessalonians 1, at least in my mind, I try to picture this and put it together. It seems that as the faithful dead rise and those living rise, 2 Thessalonians 1 seems to paint this picture that angels are going right past them to carry out this fiery judgment on the earth for those who do not know God and don't obey the gospel, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So why should we talk about hell? Because ultimately it's the consequence of sin where there will be complete separation from God, all his attributes of mercy, grace, patience, love, light, joy, goodness, hope, all of it will be gone. None of that will be in hell. All people are sick with a disease, even though they may not know that they have it, and that is sin. And whenever you're sick with a disease, what do you do? Go see your doctor, right? In Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So you need to make sure you get the right prescription. Uh, Here in the the, the devotional here in a few minutes, uh, we'll tell you what that prescription is briefly, but it's the plan of salvation. The cure for sin, though, is the blood of Christ. You know, there's a a story that's told about a vice president, Calvin Coolidge. Um, He was providing over the Senate. That's the job of the vice president. If you didn't know, what does the vice president do? Does he just walk around? Well, one of the jobs is he's supposed to preside over the Senate. And there was one day where one senator was angrily arguing with another. You can't imagine that, right? Two senators angry, arguing, okay? And one uh, gets really angry at the other, and he told the other one that he actually wishes, he says, I wish that you would go to what? The word we've been discussing, Right? And the offended senator, he looks at Calvin Coolidge and says, he can't say that to me. And Calvin Coolidge, apparently, the story goes, he looked up from this book he'd been leafing through while listening to these guys go at it. And he says, you know, I've been looking through the rule book. And he says, you don't have to go. And it was a different book. I understand it was the book of how they're supposed to conduct things in the Senate. Uh, But I sort of heard that story and thought, that's really pretty poignant because, you know, we've got the rule book right here, right? John 12, 48. 
On Judgment Day, Revelation talks about the scriptures are going to be open. And so you've got the rule book right here, and you don't have to go. Not a single person in this room has to go to hell. But you need to realize that you're sick, you need to seek the great physician, and you need to look for his prescription. And the Bible tells us God doesn't want one soul to perish. He doesn't want anybody uh, not to repent. He wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. But God will not force himself on you. He will not force himself on you. He respects you that much, and it has to be your decision. So I hope that you'll make the same decision, just like God hopes that you'll make the same decision, and you'll live your life faithfully and choose not to go to hell. Thank you so much for your attention. If you have any questions, come find me, and uh, thank you for having me. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.